be reading from Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 29. Exodus 34, 29. God's Word says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near. And he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. As you are sitting, uh, let's pray together and just open up our hearts uh, to God's word. Father God, I pray, Lord, in this moment that you will help us to behold you. Father, this is just a little church in the middle of a hay-filled father. But God, I pray that the people who have come here today will seek to see your face, Father, that they'll want to behold you and to reflect you. So, Father, whoever is here in whatever circumstance, if they are in suffering, if they are in trouble, if they are in depression, if they're in discouragement, Father, maybe they're at the height of their life, the height of their career, whatever it is, Father, I pray that at this moment you will cause all the other things in their life to be put on hold so that they can see your face in your word and shine in your glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you're new with us today, we've been walking through Exodus. We have two more Sundays in Exodus, this Sunday and next Sunday. Next Sunday is our last Sunday in Exodus. Um, uh, and then we'll kick off our summer series in Philippians thereafter. And so uh, pretty excited about it. Um, uh, if you're wondering whether or not you should take a vacation from church this summer, uh, I encourage you to read ahead in Philippians and anticipate what Paul might say about that. Um, and then come and hear for yourself. So... <laughs> If you were to ask anyone, what is the goal of the Christian life? You will most likely hear a variety of answers. You yourself might not know how to exactly answer that question. What is the goal of the Christian life? Some will say that the goal of the Christian life is peace. To be at peace with others, to have peace in life, to be able to close your eyes and go to sleep in peace and all these other kinds of expressions of peace and at ease. Others might say that the goal is joy, to have joy as you walk to work or drive to work or to have joy as you wake up in the morning. Still others might say that the goal is heaven or eternal life or some form of eternal blessing. These things are certainly great and awesome byproducts that come from God's redemptive work, but I don't think any of these things, heaven, eternal life, joy, peace, blessing. I don't think any of those things sum up the goal of the Christian life. Here's why. Think about this. What gives us peace in the middle of the night, right? Peace is a result that comes from something else. 
Peace isn't the end in and of itself. It's what comes from something else. What about joy? Why do we have joy in our present sufferings? It's not just simply because we have reached joy. Joy is there because we have reached a different goal, another goal in its entirety. So it's not just joy that's the goal, but joy is an outcome of reaching the goal. What about heaven? We've talked about heaven several times in the book of Exodus. What makes heaven and eternal life so sweet? It's not just simply because it's a place that we reach, right? It's not because heaven is our goal and our destination or even blessing. Blessing and the blessings that we receive are not our ultimate goal. Peace, joy, eternal life, and blessing are what they are because they are results from one ultimate promise in Scripture. This is the goal of the entire Christian life. To see God and to reflect His glory perfectly. To see God and to reflect His glory perfectly. Perfectly. That's what brings us peace, isn't it? How is it that I can go to sleep at night in peace? How is it that I can have joy when things don't go my way? Because it's the promise that I will see God. And not just see Him, but reflect Him, image Him. I'll be brought back to perfection someday so that I can image God in the way that I was intended to in Genesis 1 and 2. As we look at Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 35, we will consider how the story of Moses' shining face fits into the greater context of the redemptive storyline, looking specifically at Adam, Israel, Jesus, and then finally Christians. It's by reading Exodus 34 in the context of redemption that we're going to see the undying truth that God made us to behold Him and to reflect His glory. And then when we press the truth even further, all the way to Jesus, we see that it's only in Christ Jesus and by His Spirit that we are restored to behold God without fear and to image God without fading. The goal of humanity's existence, which was ruined in Adam, partially reinstated in Israel, and fully restored in Jesus Christ, has come to us because of the gospel. Now, as a result... We, God's people, Christians, are able to behold God and image His glorious nature. So Moses' shining face, from Moses' shining face to your ability to image God. That's where we're going today. Okay? Now, when it comes to considering humanity's purpose of beholding and reflecting God's glory, we should go back to the beginning, back to Genesis. This is no surprise to you. Genesis is a byword in our church, if you're new here. Um, we went verse by verse through Genesis, and since then we can't seem to get out of it no matter what book we're in. Okay, And now that we've done Exodus, we won't be able to get out of Exodus, whatever book we're in. We're preaching Matthew, and you just think we're studying Matthew, but we're studying Genesis and Exodus in Matthew. And so um, we'll never get out of these two great books. In Genesis 1, God created man in his what? In his own image, after his likeness, right? Why? So that they would reflect his dominion over the cosmos in their own dominion on earth. He has dominion over all things, over the stars, the moon. He has dominion over the sun, over the planets, over everything that spins and turns and shines. It's his dominion. And yet he gives dominion to Adam and Eve. Why? so that their dominion on earth would reflect his dominion over all. By looking at his image, at his picture, everyone would be brought to mind that there is a God who reigns and has dominion over all. 
Genesis 2 follows by recounting the personal, affectionate relationship that initially characterized mankind's walk with God. God's closeness, His eminence was demonstrated when He formed Adam out of the dust, using His hands like a, like a potter, putting together a work of art, a masterpiece. He then comes near and breathes the breath of life into man's nostrils. How close do you have to be to breathe? The, the Hebrew here is mouth to mouth. He gives, God is the first one to perform CPR. How close do you have to be? Pretty close, right? It's not going to work if you stand far back, right? You've got to come close. He's close to Adam as he's doing mouth to mouth, breathing breath into his nostrils. He personally spoke with him, provided everything he and his bride would need for life. Genesis 3.8 goes a step further by saying that God was walking in the garden, insinuating that this is a, a garden stroll that was a habitual practice between Adam and God, that this is just life in the garden God and Adam, God and, and, and humanity walking together, hand in hand, strolling in the garden in the cool of the day. So that's the image that we have of Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, mankind's able to do two things perfectly. They're able to behold God, hear His voice, see His glory. He was walking in the garden. Okay, So I don't see that as a metaphorical walking. I think it means walking, that he was walking in the garden with mankind. So they were able to behold God without fear. And then secondly, they were able to reflect God, being in his image. You looked at Adam, you saw a picture of God in perfection. Now, it doesn't mean that he was God. It just means that he imaged God, just like a picture images a person, right? It's not the person itself. It's an image of the person. In the same way, Adam imaged God in perfection without sin. You saw Adam's love for Eve, and you were reminded of God's love for hum humanity, for mankind. You saw Adam's nobility, and you're reminded of God's nobility. I mean, this is a perfect time. Pre-fall man doing these two things perfectly, beholding and reflecting. And then sin entered the, entered the world. And what two things were changed drastically? It's not just that Adam couldn't eat fruit anymore, right? Because Adam's allowed to eat after that. It's not that he can't speak anymore because Adam still speaks. So nothing else about mankind changed except for these two things. Mankind was no longer able to behold God without fear. And not just behold God. He hears the sound of God coming into the garden. Doesn't even see God. Just hears his sound. And what's his response? He's got to hide. Why? Because he's afraid. Because sin has caused him to be afraid of beholding the glory of the immortal God. He knows he can't stand in God's perfection in his current state. But not only that, Adam's nobility changed too. His ability to image God. We see God is a self-sacrificing, loving God who provides and cares for, who's not self-centered in the sense of where he only provides for himself or only gives for himself, but he provides for humanity and loves humanity. But Adam is tarnished image, is a tarnished image as he begins to blame his wife. He's now naked and ashamed. That's not how we would describe God, right? God's not naked and ashamed. God's not a blame shifter. God's not someone who blames everybody else for sin. God doesn't sin. There's no evil in God at all. And so we have humanity after the fall, and they're no longer the perfect image of God. 
They still image God in glimpses, but it's not the same way that it was. Adam and his descendants after the fall became like broken mirrors, shattered shards of glass left in the mud. Now, to be sure, sometimes when you walk by a broken mirror, you can still catch a glimpse of a reflection of light, right? But it's not perfect. You don't get to behold that image for very long. It's just a passing glimpse of it. And so today, as sinners, we still image God in part, but it's nothing compared to the way that we were made to image God's intense glory. Just just to think about the way that God made us to reflect Him. To think of the way that God intended that when people thought about Him and they looked at us, they, they were reminded of how great and how glorious and how mighty He was. Now God's plan of redemption seeks to reverse humanity's state. What two things is God working to do? To bring us back into a relationship to where we can behold Him and to where we can reflect Him. That's what the gospel seeks to do. God wants to make it so that we are no longer separated from Him. We are no longer distant from Him. That we no longer have to uh, fear and hide His presence. Hide from His presence. That, but instead we can stand in His presence and behold the glory of the amazing, mighty God. To walk with Him again. To hear His voice. To see His sweet face. That's what God wants to do. And in the process to bring us back into the image that we were meant to be. Now we fast forward to Exodus 34. Exodus 34.29 says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking to God. Now, to review, Israel had broken the covenant by worshiping the golden calf. We, we know this. We, we've been walking through this for a while. Right after, they were threatened with complete destruction. Moses interceded for them, effectively rescuing them from God's intense wrath. But when he returned to the bottom of the mountain, what happened to the two tablets? They were smashed, right, on the foot of the mountain, showing that their relationship with God had been shattered. Moses then does... Uh, uh, what is it, a 180 or a 360 or whatever it is that you do the turnabout, right? I'm not good at math. Don't even bother. <laughs> and he goes right back up the mountain to negotiate atonement with God to see if he can bring reconciliation. And, and he offers himself as a sacrifice. Blot my name out of the book so that these people might live and that you will be their God. Well, God refuses to do that, but he still allows for there to be a restoration Having secured God's promise of reconciliation, Moses then asked probably the most appropriate request ever made by a man. The best prayer that a person could ever pray. Let me see your glory. Now God tells him, you can't see my face and live. That's a byproduct of Genesis 3. Because of Genesis 3, man cannot see God's face and live. We are unholy. He is holy. We would burn up in the intensity of his holiness if we saw his face. And yet God says, but I will put you into the cleft of a rock, into the cleft of the mountain. I will hold my hand over you, and you will be able to see my goodness and my glory as I pass by. Having seen God's glory pass by, Moses then remains on the mountain for 40 days. Now, Scripture says that as he's coming down, his face begins to shine. His face was shining. The reason given, I think, is important. 
If you look at the reason why it says that, he said, it says that he did not know that his face shone. Why? Because he had been talking with God. Moses' time in the presence of God left a residual light on Moses' face. One scholar describes the light of his face as the afterglow of God's glory. Having seen the glory of the immortal God, Moses is radiating light from his face. I don't know if you can imagine this. This sounds pretty daggum creepy, right? To see a guy, none of you glow. We turned all the lights off. None of you glow. Moses glowed. Radiated light. And all this was because of the important detail that he had seen the glory of God and that he lingered in God's presence. I think that's a detail that we need to just stop stop at and camp on just for a moment. How do people change? How do people change? Well, sure, they can go to AA, right? They can go to a counselor. They can read the, you know, seven habits of great effective people or whatever. They can read all these books, whatever. But how do people really change? How does Scripture show people change? People change in the same way Moses changed. How was Moses transformed from a lowly exiled shepherd into a man whose face radiated with glory? He didn't pick up a book about seven helpful hints for transformation. Nor did he clean himself up so that his face would shine when God's light. That's not what he did. Moses was transformed in the same way all people are transformed. Namely, by beholding God. You read the whole testimony of Scripture. There's only one way in which people change. It's by coming into contact with the living God. Isaiah 6, he sees the train of God's robe, sees the glory fill the temple. And what does he say? This sinful, prideful man, we we know he's sinful and prideful based on his own testimony. This sinful, prideful man goes from being sinful, arrogant, and prideful to seeing the glory of God. And then what does he say? Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. He changes. He's transformed. Whether good or bad, that which we behold, we eventually become like. G.K. Bill has helpfully said it, put it this way. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. Well, here we have Moses beholding God, and he begins to shine like God. He reveres God, and he begins to reflect God. What you behold is what you become. What is held dear in your eyes, what is treasured in your heart and mind, that which you hold as closest and most valuable to you, that is what you inevitably begin to resemble. Inevitably. Before we can become what God intends for us to become, we must first behold God in faith and worship. My friends, there's a lot I can do in a sermon. And there's a lot to accomplish in a, you know, any a 35 to 45 minute sermon, which y'all all know it never goes that short. So, <laughs> but for the sake of the recording, it will. There's a lot to accomplish, right? 
You know how many times I hear people just say, you know, I, I love all the theology, I love all the connection to Jesus, but just tell me what to do. What am I supposed to do? What am I, how am I supposed to apply that? And it always breaks my heart because I feel like people are missing the point. Applications are important. We will always need to apply God's word. We will always need to make connections to how to live out God's word. But people cannot apply God's word until they behold the Son of God in the word. We can give seven helpful hints at how to transform your life. It won't do you any good unless you behold the one you're transformed into. The most important thing any sermon can do, the greatest application any sermon can make is to behold God. Because there has yet never been a person who has beheld God and walked away feeling like they can be the same. That's the one goal of every sermon. And the thing that makes any sermon effective, you can walk out and go, man, that was a great, powerful, impactful sermon. I've got ten things that I can do this week now. I've written them down. I'm just going to walk, walk through them. But my friends, if the sermon has not made you beheld Jesus, it was not a gospel-centered sermon. We labor here in the pulpit. All the elders that teach here labor behind this pulpit to do one thing. We want to see your life get better, absolutely. We want to see your marriages grow, absolutely. We want you to become more self-sacrificing, absolutely. But how do you become more self-sacrificing? By looking to the sacrifice. How do you become more holy? By looking to Him who's holy. If we did nothing else, we'd talk about Jesus. And how great and how holy and how mighty and how righteous and how awesome and how perfect he is. Just by looking at his face in the word of God, we are transformed. Not to negate applications whatsoever. In fact, I've got applications at the end of this sermon. But they're applications that come by beholding. That applies to your quiet time every morning. You read the scriptures. Don't just read it to find out what to do. I hate to tell you the Bible's not about you. The Bible's about Jesus. The Bible's not filled with rules and things to tell you how you should live your life. It's filled with ways that he lived his and why now you are able to live in result of that. Look to Jesus. And you're changed. And we'll see how that applies more. That was, that was the last half of my sermon. So <laughs> we'll go back to Moses now. When the people of Israel saw Moses' face, they responded in the same way in which they responded in Exodus 20. You remember they saw God's glory shining on the mountain, and what did they do? They were afraid and they stood far off. Exodus 34, they see the glory of God shining on Moses' face, and then once again they're afraid, and they're afraid to come near. This shows that it doesn't matter where God's glory is for Israel, they're still afraid and want to stand far off. It could be on the back of a beetle, and they would have ran from the beetle. Okay, It is God's glory that they're afraid of here and afraid to come near, near to. So I see two uh, truths that are implied from their response to God's glory. Number one, Israel is not yet able to stand in the glorious presence of God. 
Not at this point. Now, if, if you're a good reader like me, if you like to if you like to read good novels and good stories, you're hoping that these things are starting to climax to a conclusion, right? You want some problems to be solved. Well, Exodus is not a good a good fiction. <laughs> okay, it's not a good novel because it's not the end of the story. It's chapter. It's a chapter in the big picture story. Exodus will not leave us with any kind of resolution for how is Israel able to have a secure full, open access to God. It leaves that unresolved. And specifically because it wants to point us forward to the one who actually does solve that problem. Moses, with all of his mediation, with all of his work on Israel's behalf, with his offer to sacrifice himself, with him seeing a glimpse of God's glory, is not able to bring Israel into a confident relationship with God in which they can behold God's glory and not be afraid. He is incapable of doing that. It leaves us longing for more as we come near the book of Exodus. And I, and I kind of hope you feel that when we get to Exodus 40 next week, because when we get to Exodus 40, you're like, oh, okay, that's great. What happens? What happened? What's going? How, how are these tensions going to be solved? Well, that's why we're doing Matthew in the fall to see how these things are ultimately resolved in Christ. But I think it implies a second truth as well. That they respond to Moses' reflection in the same way they responded to God's glory implies that Moses descended the mountain as a true image of God. Moses represents here what we were all made to be. A reflection of God's glory. He's got the tablets in his hand symbolizing a relationship with God. He's got God's glory shining on his faith, face, showing that he had been in the presence of God and that the afterglow of God's glory is shining on him. And not only that, when he speaks, he speaks the word of God. This is humanity at its finest. To where Moses disappears and God's glory is seen in its fullness on his face. If you want a little picture at what God's idea of humanity is, it's Moses coming down the mountain glowing after being in God's presence. That's what God wants for us. He represents a partial represent, uh, restoration, a partial restoration back to man's ability to behold and reflect God. But there's still a problem. Because as great as Moses' shining face is, and as great of a glimpse as it gives us into what we were made to be, it's only a partial glimpse. Uh, his, his face, as we see here in a little, well, let's just read it. Verse 33. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Now you read that and you're like, okay, why? Why? If I, if I glowed like a flashlight in the dark, I'm not so sure that I'm going to be veiling my face. Right? That's a pretty unique thing. Get me into Ripley's Believe It or Not or something. I mean, my goodness, that's amazing. So why does he want to put a veil over his face? Well, Exodus 34 doesn't tell us. Some scholars debate about this. Some say that he veiled his face because when he talked to other people, he didn't want them to be afraid when he, when he looked at them or when they looked at him. Seems valid enough. Others think that he veiled his face because the glory would eventually fade on his face. And he didn't want people to see the light on his face get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. Can you imagine how demoralizing that would be to be glowing with God's glory and you're not growing brighter, you're, gr- you're glowing dimmer as it goes. 
And then others say it was symbolic, that Moses doesn't want them to hang on to the Old Covenant because the Old Covenant's passing away, the New Covenant's coming. Well, that might be true. I think that's giving, it a, giving Moses a bit too much foresight. I don't think he knew exactly how all these things would work. Um, but I think the debate is finally settled in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says about Moses putting on his face, that he a veil on his face, he says that Moses put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of that which was being brought to an end. Hmm. That's interesting. Sounds confusing at least, right? But if you read it in context, it's, it seems like he's saying that Moses' face and the glory on his face would eventually grow dim, that it would fade. Symbolizing then that the old covenant was a fading glory that would soon be surpassed by a more eternal glory. So just to paint the picture, this interpretation makes sense when you get to verses 34 through 35. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses put, would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, I, I think, based on what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 3, that what this means is that Moses would go into the presence of God, unveil his face, God's glory would shine, and it would leave its afterglow on his face. He would come right out from the tent of meeting, speak with God's people, glowing like a glowworm, and then as soon as he stopped speaking God's word, the glory would begin to fade. Why? Because he's not in God's presence anymore. Because he's not in the presence of God's glory anymore. And so he'd veil his face until the next time to go back in. And he'd go back into the tent, unveil his face. Lo and behold, his face would shine again. Now I'm just, I'm seeing this and I'm like, okay, if everything in Exodus is showing us that God is working to restore, to redeem humanity, then we just saw that Israel is partially restored with God, right? To where they're able to behold God's glory, on Moses' face at least, but not without fear. So it's a partial restoration. They can behold, but not without being afraid. Well, here Moses is able to reflect, but he doesn't reflect without fading. The glow of God's glory eventually goes away. So just as we look to the Israelites and we're left longing for the ability to behold God without fear, we look at Moses' shining face asking for a time, for a day, when we will be able to reflect God's glory without fading. Moses is an impartial step. He's just, he's just a step in the right direction in the progression of redemption. But he is not the destination. He is not the destination. Humanity still at this point cannot see the full glory of God. They can't even see God's glory as it shines on the face of a man, let alone see the face of God. So praise God in Exodus 34. He has brought His people to be able to behold His glory. And yet, Exodus 34 goes, yeah, but we want to see it in full. We don't want to see it in part. We don't want to behold in fear. We want to behold without fear. Yeah, we, we are grateful that You brought Moses to reflect but he faded over time. We want to reflect without fading. So where does that leave us? Well, it reminds us of our need for the Messiah who would come and bring full restoration. This Messiah, the Christ, who would 
be able to remove the veil off of our hearts so that we could behold God in His fullness without fear, in confidence, and to reflect God's glory without fading. When we see Moses' shining face, we cannot help but think about the shining face of another mediator. A more perfect mediator who could do what Moses could not do. It's interesting, when John introduces Jesus, he introduces, introduces him as the Word whose light gives life to men, right? We, in Him was light, and the light was the life of men, right? Was the life of the world, right? Okay. And then it says that He took on flesh and dwelt among us, and then He glories and basks in this, and we have beheld His glory. Why would John say that? I mean, I don't go to breakfast meetings with you guys and go, oh yeah, I had breakfast with Larry and I beheld his glory. (laughs) Why do you think John is making that kind of connection, that parallel? Because he's saying, we used to not be able to even look God's glory in the face of a man named Moses. And yet we see Jesus and we have beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus, like Moses, reflected God's glory. But unlike Moses, Jesus' glory is that of the Son, full of grace and truth. Moses reflected in part and faded. Jesus reflected in perfection and never fades. The darkness does not overcome him. It gets even more real when we read in uh, Matthew chapter 17 that Jesus led Peter, James, and John up a mountain, up another mountain. That's bizarre, right? You're just listening to these echoes and these drum beats. They're up on a mountain again. And this is what it says. And he was transfigured before them. And his face did what? His face shone like the sun. And not just his face, his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him, uh, to them, Moses and Elijah talking with them. So we got Moses on a mountain with another guy's face shining. What do you think we're supposed to think of? This is the fulfillment of Exodus 34. Now it gets even better than that. Because Moses shows up, Elijah shows up, Jesus' face is shining. They're on the mountain. Exodus 34 just drum beating away here. What were they talking about? What, what kind of conversation do you think Moses and Jesus had? Wow, it's a lot better up here than it was on my mountain, Jesus. This is great. Is that what they're talking about? No. Luke tells us exactly what they were talking about. If you turned over to Luke 9 at the, at the same, same event, the transform, transfiguration event, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are talking explicitly about his departure. Do you want to know what that word is in Greek? They were talking about his exodon, his exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Oh, wow. That changes things, doesn't it? Jesus shining like the sun. Moses shows up and they begin to talk about the exodus he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. What is he going to do in Jerusalem? Suffer, die, raise again. Jesus brought about an exodus Moses could have just just have dreamed about. It's an exodus so great that the the minor prophets speak of it as an exodus so great that people will stop talking about the first exodus. That it won't even come to mind. 
Because the exodus that Jesus has brought is so much better. Jesus outshines Moses because the glory of God is not just seen on a man's face and then fades. Jesus' glory shines at the cross, at the resurrection, and the empty tomb where people have to shield their eyes because the intensity of God's glory is so great. God's goodness, God's name, the Lord, the Lord, who is gracious and merciful and yet who has judged sin. Moses' glory faded over time. Moses' glory was a veiled glory. But Jesus' glory is unveiled. All kinds of hints and, and, and reminders of God moving the veil, ripping the veil, tearing the veil. So that we can now behold God's glory. In his crucified and risen son. Now the author of Hebrews is just thinking about this. When he writes in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He speaks of Jesus in his surpassing glory. And it's no mistake that later he goes to compare why Jesus is better than Moses. But he starts off here in chapter 1 of Hebrews. He is the radiance. The shining of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. Sure, Moses imaged God when he walked down the mountain, and it was a kind of temporary image and reflection, but Jesus is the perfect imprint. Jesus is the perfect radiance. He doesn't just reflect. He is the radiance. Do you see that? He doesn't just reflect God's glory. He is the radiance of God's glory. He's the sun itself, not just the sunbeam. Moses was a moon, if you think about it. The moon reflects the light from the sun, and that's how we're able to see the moon. Jesus isn't the moon. He's the sun itself, who shines and radiates the light of God's glory. Now, all that's great, right? But what does it have to do with us? This is where we actually begin to think about our application of Exodus 34. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross and through his resurrection, Christians are allowed to behold God and reflect his glory in a way Moses could never have imagined. In this way, the glory of the new covenant outshines the glory of the old. And then if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, we have Paul expounding on Exodus 34. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, what is he talking about? Talking about the tablets, right? That are in Moses' hands. If they came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? You hear what he's doing? He's working from a lesser to the greater. If the glory seen in the Old Covenant was so great that people could not even begin to look Moses in the face then how much greater is the glory of the new covenant in which the Spirit has brought to God's people? I love reading Exodus. But there's one thing Exodus has proved to me time and again. As great as it would have been there to see some of these things, man, I have it much better than Moses did. Moses saw in part, I know the Savior's name. Moses heard whispers. 
but the gospel has shouted light into my heart. My friends, we as Christians, and this is what's amazing to me, we, we, we honor and revere men like Moses, and well, we should. They are men of faith. But they longed for your day. Abraham looked ahead to Jesus and longed for his day when they could see Jesus. You are in a better position than Moses on the mountain with a shining face. Paul says as much. He goes on to say that when one turns to the Lord, that's a that's a symbol of repentance. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed and we behold God's glory. This in turn causes us to reflect God's glory as his image is restored inside of us. We are restored to humanity's original purpose. Now, how is this possible? It is possible because of God's spirit at work in us. Look specifically at verse 18. If you're not in 2 Corinthians 3, go to 2 Corinthians 3.18. And just mark it there. Here's what Paul says. And we all, speaking of Christians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you hear what Paul is saying here? We have the Spirit. So that means we are now able to behold God without ceasing. Moses went in and out of God's presence. And his ability to shine God's glory was dependent on whether he was coming in or going out. When he came in, the image was restored. The light, the brightness of the light was regiven. He'd come back out and it was there for a temporary amount of time, but eventually faded. My friends, do we have to go in and out of God's presence? Does the author of Hebrews later go on to say, yeah, and come in and out boldly? Is that what he says? No, he says, come in. We go in and we stay in. We go in and we go further up and further in. We never have to come out. The ability to behold God never goes away. Why? Because God's spirit is inside of us. This is the great truth that the rest of the world thinks we're crazy for. That God has so restored us that we no longer just have God with us. We have God in us. Not meaning that we're God. It means that we have such a great relationship with God. It is unbreakable. We are unified. Which means we never have to look away. My friends, when we stop beholding God, you realize that's your choice. It's not because you have to go out of His presence. It's because we willingly walk out of His presence. When we feel like we're no longer beholding God, typically it's us who've decided to do that. Oh, but you don't understand. I read my Bible every day and I still feel distant from God. Yeah, Moses stayed on the mountain for 40 days before his face glowed. You can't be made into the image of God and restored from one degree of glory to another by taking 40 seconds to read. You have to linger. Not, we're not saved so that we can have passing glimpses at God. We're saved so that we can behold, gaze, look upon, stare at, marvel at. 
This is the one time in life nobody will tell you it's rude to stare. Behold God through his spirit. And because we're able to behold God without ceasing, we are able to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Do you hear that? Moses faded. His glory diminished. What do Christians do when they behold God? They are transformed from one degree of glory to another. We increase. God's glory reflecting in us doesn't fade. It increases. It shoots up as we behold God more and more. How often has this been your experience when you open up God's word and you just feel this connection and you feel like you've beheld God and and the more you do it, the more you feel yourself changing and transforming. Because the longer you linger in beholding God, the more you are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Now, how do you behold? I will give you three ideas of how to behold. I think the first one is that you behold Him day by day as you go to His Word. The best way to behold God is by going to His Word. This is God's self-revelation. That's what we believe about that. We believe it's God's Word written about God so that we may know God. If you want to know God, you go to His Word because this is where He's introduced Himself to us, right? And what's amazing about that is the more we read it, the more we see His face and the more we behold, and the more we behold, the more we walk out wanting to apply everything we read in it. James calls it looking into the mirror. But we don't look into the mirror and then walk away and forget. We look into the mirror and remember and apply and do. So behold God daily. Is a daily time of of Bible reading important? Absolutely. Why? Because it's some legalistic sign of your salvation? Well, no. But because that's the way you get your gaze at God for the day. This is how you behold the Lord. Secondly, we do it through prayer. Prayer is humiliating. To have to pray to someone else that we will have the ability to honor and obey Him and worship Him and that He'll bring our dominions under His dominion is humbling, right? And in that, we're restoring the relationship with God that Adam was meant to have. That is not a dominion that's independent of God, but a dominion that's under God's dominion. So when we pray, we behold God. We actually speak with God. Moses was shining because he was talking with God. And now we don't have to go to any place to talk with God. We can talk with God right where we're at. In our car, in our, at our work. We can do it in our living room, in our bedroom, and wherever we are, we can talk to God. And that means we can behold God in prayer. When we pray, this is what makes prayer so sweet. It brings you into the presence of God. Now, third, I think we do it. And this one, this one's underrated, um, for how often people fail to see it. We behold God when we behold His image in others. We behold God when we behold His image in others. Now, this truth alone is the reason why you'll never be able to do church online. You can hear sermons online. That's great. That's one part of church. But there's one thing you can't do in isolation. You can't behold God in others. And that is one particular way that God has decided 
to sharpen us in his image. I've been a pastor at Grace Church for about three and a half years. When Merle Gorman walks into the room and says, let's pray, I know that I'm standing in the presence of a man who stood in the presence of God. When Dennis Holcomb held my hand and wanted to talk about Jesus, I knew that I was in the presence of a man who knew him personally. There's something about imaging God in to others and before others that makes it so unique. Yeah, we've got lots of dross and lots of dirt and lots of smudges and tarnishes. God's restored the mirror, but we're still kind of faded and dim and all that kind of stuff. He's still polishing us up. But still to be able to look into the eyes of another and see God in His glory, to see His love. It also helps you decide what you choose to decide what you choose to look at when you look at others. Nobody walks into your house and points out all the things that you've got wrong in the house, right? You want them to see the good things that you have presented, right? But when we get together as a church, we should be looking for God's image in others. You should assume their sin is there. You don't have to look for it. You do have to look for his image in others. That's what's amazing as we begin to discover as as we're looking at someone and we're listening to them, when we know that they're a believer, that they profess faith in Jesus, that they trust in the gospel, it is easy to see their downfalls. But my goodness, it's precious and honorable to see God's image at work in them. To see this person that's typically selfish become a sacrificer. To see this person who typically makes everything about themselves to suddenly speak about everything God is doing. And when I'm around those kinds of people, it just draws out God's image in me. My friends, light grows together. We can all be little sparks in our own little corners of the world, but we grow the brightest when we're together. That's what God has made us to be as a church. One massive image. People should be able to walk in here and everywhere they turn, wherever they see a believer, it's light, it's bright. They see God's image. They see God's welcome. They see Jesus' love. They see forgiveness and grace. Yes, we take stances. Yes, we're against darkness. We're light, by the way. We wouldn't be light if we agreed with the darkness. But it is a warm and welcoming light. And what we want to be is a light that helps people out of the darkness. Because it's much better to be in the light. Now this is not to say that we become perfect image bearers in this lifetime. In fact, Scripture says that we won't. We do have this great promise, though. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall what? See him as he is. See him as he is. At one moment when Jesus comes back, glory shines through. Not one believer in Jesus at that day will have any tarnished dirt dust, dross, or anything in the gold. The gold will shine bright because we will see Him in perfection. That's amazing. I get to shine now. Jesus says, you are the lights of the world right now. 
And yet, there's yet a promise we're going to shine brighter because we will see Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian life. That's the goal of the Christian life. I hope you have peace. I hope you have joy. I hope you experience blessing. I hope you are excited about heaven and eternal life. But all, all those things only, become, only come true because of what is most true, which is we, as God's people, will see God. That's the greatest blessing. That's what brings the greatest peace, right? That's why people, Christians, in the moment of death can welcome death like a friend because it's the vehicle that drives them to God's house where they'll be able to see God. Suffering cleans up the mirror. It polishes us. That makes it welcoming, right? Because if we're listening to our suffering well and we're applying the gospel to our suffering well, our sufferings are going to polish the light so we image better. One way to work out a rough spot in a piece of wood is to sand it down. One way to work out all the nasty chips and broken pieces in a sculpture is to chip it away with a chisel. God wasn't lying when he said that all things now work for the good of those who are called by his purpose. So my friends, I stand there together today with you begging God, praying for God, asking God to help us to live and worship for this one end, that we will behold God and shine His glory in our world. Let's pray. Father God, we, got, we have a great truth in Jesus, in the gospel, that we are able to behold God without fear, but in confidence. Because of Jesus, God, you have sent your son so that we can have a firm stance, not in our own righteousness, but in his righteousness, and that we may behold you now by looking in his face, beholding you in him. And because of that, Father, you are transforming, transforming us from one degree of glory to another. May we as a church image your glory in a way uh, that has not been able to be done in this church in the past. May we image you as we behold together. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.